Roger Dale. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12. Now, I know that one of the downsides in going back and forth between two books and what it brings about is getting back into the context uh, that we were in the last time we were in either one. <laughs> so hopefully I can get us back to speed from the last time we were in Colossians 3 and we studied verses 10 and 11. This is a very practical section that deals with the matter of Christian living. We talked last time about the laying aside of the old self and the putting on of the new self. That's the thrust of verses 5 through 17 in this whole section that we're studying. Coming to Christ on His terms of repentance and faith, as we have said, is a transformation. It's a new life. It's very much a miracle when it happens. The old way that you had of thinking and behaving changes. How you think about life. How you think about death. It's a process that still, really and truly, just continues to fascinate me to this day. And I've been a Christian for over 26 years now. I'm still fascinated by it. So this section here is for primarily... Now that we have been saved, what do we do now? That's what we've been learning. Back in verses 5 to 9, Paul gave us that list. You remember that list of things that we have to constantly work at killing in ourselves, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, idolatry. We, we constantly have to be at work killing those things. So the, the first thing that the new self has to do as Paul lays this out is get rid of some of the old stuff and keep working at that. But then in verse 10, he starts to talk about putting on some new things. There's a comparative passage found in Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 21 to 24. You can look in your Bible or you can look on the screen. The Bible says, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him. I love this parentheses. Just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside 
the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and look here, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So some of the same exact language that we find in our text here in Colossians. And remember, it's since you have laid aside the old self and have put on the new self. Since you are an old man, don't put on the old man anymore is the idea. And that's the struggle, right? In the early Roman Empire, there was a custom in some places that if you were found guilty of murdering somebody, the punishment was to strap tightly the dead body of the victim to your body. You couldn't get loose of it. It was gruesome. And it wouldn't take long before it would begin to have a very dramatic effect on you. It would soon start to rot and decay your body and kill you. I wish we had statistics on how this punishment affected the murder rate. I guarantee it was different than the murder rate in Baton Rouge. Yes, sir. And maybe this is what Paul had on his mind because it would be a good way to illustrate this point. If you are a new man, why are you carrying around strapped to you that old dead body? Why you keep digging him up? Because all he's going to do is corrupt you. Think about this. I've, I've, I've told you this before, but it's good to bring to your remembrance. Think about how much better it is for you on any given day, Christian, when you clothe yourself on the outside in your lifestyle with the new man that you are in reality. Isn't that your best day? Even though that's true, we still struggle, don't we? Which really demonstrates how intense our daily battle with the flesh truly, truly is. Now, just a refresher. In this section of verses 5 to 17, we've already covered three points. Number one was the position of the new man. Number two was the progress of the new man. And number three was the partnership of the new man. That was in verse 11. Remember, we talked all about that. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all in all. If you didn't go through that, you can go back on the Facebook page, remember, and you can either listen to it on the podcast or watch it on the video. 
So I won't go back over all of that. But now for today, we come to number four. A performance of the new man. Here, starting in verse 12, we are getting away from what God has done for the new man over into what God expects the new man to do in response to what he has done for the new man. This is our behavior matching our position in Christ. Look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, strap those expository steel-toed boots up real tight right here. Because the Word of God is fixing to do some major damage to your toes, believers. Paul is saying, this is the performance that is requested by God of the new man. This is to be the outward manifestation of the inward transformation. And he sets us up in verse 12 right away with some hard-hitting theology so as those who have been chosen of God, the elect of God, those sovereignly chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Have you ever struggled with that? Welcome to the club. Are you struggling with that right now? Come see me. I love to talk about it. And it's okay to struggle with it. We've been talking about sovereignty and responsibility. There's nothing wrong with struggling with it as long as you remember you can't escape it in Scripture. You want some examples? You're going to get them anyway. Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. Kentwood clear spring water right here. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, period, in love, comma, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. How, Paul? According to the kind intention of his will. Why, Paul? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. Amen. That's the only answers you're ever going to get as to the how and why in the Bible besides verse 4, he loved us. There's your answers. Two passages in Revelation tell us the names of every believer were written in the Lamb's book of life. When? 
before the foundation of the world. And by the way, since we're right now in this context of talking about living on the outside, what we are on the inside, consider Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Again, I said it before, I'll say it again. For all folks, these verses are not hard to understand. For some folks, they are just too hard to swallow. Like I said last week, just be content with not being able to reconcile it all in your puny human brain and let God be God. It'll change your life if you do. That's a sermon for another day. Yes, you are responsible to exercise faith. Yes, you are. But let me tell you something in the big picture. You are not a Christian by your own choice, but by God's choice before time began. And when God calls in time all those who were chosen before time, every single one of them responds to that call with saving faith every single time. Martin Luther said this. It's actually not complicated. If you want Christ and the gospel, you are one of his elect. All of us who are born naturally, clearly unwilling to believe are made willing to believe when God calls, regenerates, and grants to us the gifts of repentance and faith. So be sure to understand that that underlying our response to the grace of God in our life is God's plan is God's initiative. And then every person who has undergone this incredible transformation begins to live a life that is consistent with that new identity. And it is our responsibility to do so. Look again at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, and look at that next word, holy. Now that word in in the Greek means set apart. And there's another sermon series right there. I'm talking about the moral purity of God, the transcendence of God. But here, particularly, we're focusing in on set apart. When, When God elected us, He elected us to draw us out of the mainstream of fallen humanity. That was his plan. And so therefore, we as believers are called to be different. I don't care what they say in Rome. The Bible calls all believers saints. 
Every believer in here is a saint. We are called to be unique, separate from the world system in which we live. And when we do not behave that way, we are violating the very thing that God called us to from before the foundation of the world. Just let that thought settle down in your thinking for just a minute. The living out of the Christian life is a mixture of us and God working in us and through us at the same time. And every day, we do have the capacity to live in violation of the entire intention of God from before time began. What a responsibility living the Christian life is for the believer. What a struggle. Now, as you think about that, be very thankful that Paul's not done in this verse because look next in verse 12. And beloved. That should have you... Exhaling based on what I just said. Christian, while we are going through this struggle with our flesh, we are loved by God, the maker of heaven and earth. This is very personal. Our purpose in the Christian life It's not just to grit our teeth and grind out God's plan for us in our own power and strength. There is a real and transcendent love relationship going on here between God and His believers. And it's locked in place to motivate us and to drive us to live out God's plan for our lives. That's why it's there. I have no idea why God chose me. None whatsoever. I mean, of all people, why me? I can't answer that question for any of us. But I'll tell you this. I'm not going to fight it. By grace, I accept it. Even though I can't reconcile it all, in my little brain. And because it's true, I want the reality of it to motivate me to live out the plan that God has mapped out for me till my last breath. Now, next in verse 12, Paul lays out some particulars for how this life is to be lived, that God has planned for us. Notice next in verse 12, Paul starts with the same phrase that we saw in verse 10. In verse 10, put on, remember? Which again, it means to put your clothes on. It carries the idea of covering up. It says, he's saying, cover your life with this. This is to be your external lifestyle. And he uses that Phrase. Look in verse 12. 
put on a heart of. Now remember, we studied this a while back. For the Jew, the heart included the mind, but it was way deeper than that for the Jews than just the thinking of the mind. They related, related everything to an emotional response that was physical. The, the heart was the seat of compassion and, and sympathy and deep feelings, literally, literally down in your guts, the whole package. So he's saying, you need to have a deep gut level of compassion. The, the idea of the word here is also, is also sympathy and mercy. Now you need to know that in Paul's day, people who were maimed, or people who got really sick, those folks were just not paid attention to at all. They didn't have no hospital, they didn't have no doctors, no walk-in clinics. They just put them out by the wall of the city to fend for themselves. And everybody just walked around them. And they begged, but eventually they died. And there was also no provision at all for the elderly. There was no provision at all for the mentally handicapped. They were just put outside. Fend for yourself. And then Jesus stepped in the world and basically said to those he preached to, I want you to have a gut feeling down in your bowels of, of sympathy and compassion for all these types of people and that was really, really a radical and new way of thinking for the culture of his day. As we read in the, as we read in the gospels, Jesus was always very concerned for the poor, was he not? And the sick. So much so that he fed them and he healed them and he dealt with them. He told the church, take care of the orphans and the widows and the, and your parents when they get old. Let me ask you a question. Where do you think hospitals and orphanages come from? Not the Muslims. That's why here at our church, we are geared into Mary's House of Bread, Central Food Bank, the Central Community Assistance Foundation, and helping the Walker PD in their ministry to the elderly. That's why we do it. We're being obedient to what Jesus wants us to do. We are to be the greatest helpers of the poor and the sick and the needy of the world. And doing so, not to get pats on the back, but with real deep-seated compassion for them. That's what he's getting at here. Now, next, Paul lists the word kindness. And that kind of overlaps with compassion, right? If you're living the life, the new life, one thing that ought to characterize you is kindness. Somebody once said, kindness is the virtue of a man whose neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own. Now we live in a time when simple kindness to other people, whether you know them or not, just seems to be continually disappearing. Have you been out there? Shouldn't be that way for us. Do you know it's really not that hard just to be kind to somebody? It's really not. You really 
just have to be not selfish to be kind. That's the great kindness blocker. Selfishness. Next, Paul lists in verse 12, humility. Now, we're running through these quickly. We could spend more time, but I want you to see all of these together today, okay? Did you know that in classical Greek, there is no word for humility? They didn't believe in it. Now, there's a whole lot of other words in the Bible that we use to get at the idea, but humility is something that the Greeks despised. The Greeks loved pride. And strength, and, and here comes Jesus, and he's preaching, and he says, be humble. Here comes Paul, and he says, put on humility. Humility is another antidote to selfishness. And he says, be humble. Self, love. Let me tell you what self-love does. You love yourself. It poisons all your relationships with other people. Don't fall for that crap on TV about you need to love yourself. Don't listen to that. That's not what the Bible says. When you love yourself and you're a self-seeking person above all things on the job, in your family, in the church, wherever you are, you will always poison relationships with other people. And let me tell you, it's real hard to talk to somebody about Christianity if that's how you roll in your day-to-day life. Next, verse 12, we get the word gentleness. Sometimes that's translated as meekness. As you know, meekness is not weakness. The way we think of the word meekness today is some kind of limp-wristed, effeminate, passive man that Everybody just rolls over all the time. He's meek. That's not, biblically speaking, that's not what the word means. Meekness is powerful strength under control. Powerful strength kept under control. And the way the word is used here is in reference to the willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than to inflict such hurts on others. That's the way the word is used here. It's like, if somebody's going to get hurt in the situation, let it be me. That's what it is. If somebody's going to be offended, I'll take the offense. I'll step up and take the wrong. If somebody's going to suffer here, let it be me instead of the other person. And the essence of true humility is right in the midst of that kind of thinking. Now, I didn't say any of this was easy. But I am showing you these are the things we are being called to put on in our lives, Christians. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, even... If anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit, look at the word, of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Whoa, in other words, before you get feeling too high and mighty, 
just remember, you could be suffering from the same problem and you could be tempted in the same way. And then lastly, in verse 12, we come to the word patience. Also translated long suffering. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to hold on to that one a little tighter, huh? Hmm? MacArthur Study Bible says the opposite of quick anger, resentment, or revenge, and thus epitomizes Jesus Christ. It endures injustice and troublesome circumstances with hope for coming relief. Great study note right there. The goal would be, no matter how hard you are trying in any situation to be loving with somebody, no, no matter how hard you are trying to get your point across that's right, and they just shoot back at you, and they just interrupt you, and they don't accept it, and they don't listen to what you're saying, you don't get angry. You don't shoot back. Hmm? How you doing with that one? Hmm? Did you know that God is patient? He's patient with you. He's patient with me. If you don't know that, you ought to try thinking about it because you ought to know it. I mean, just think about how you've been doing with this list so far. Hmm? Is God patient with us? Now, does this mean we never get mad? Nope. We have every right to be angry with the evil that this world system produces that we live in and speak out about it. Yes, we do. It's righteous anger. We have every right to be angry and call out the false teachers in the church. Yes, we do. But in the normal day-to-day situations in the family, in the church, in the workplace, I'm telling you, we have to cultivate patience and long-suffering with others, and it's work, right? Because you can be patient with some people more than you can easily than with others, right? I'm at the head of the list. You got to be patient with me. You got to deal with me. I'm very much a work in progress. How about you? First Timothy 1.16, yet for this reason, Paul says, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You know what Paul is saying? If you don't think Jesus is patient, let me give you my testimony. That's what he's saying. And of course, Paul's not done here in Colossians 3. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And what does it mean, bearing with one another? Well, it doesn't mean, man, do I ever have to endure that guy. Doesn't mean that. Literally in the Greek, it means to hold yourself back from one another, bearing with one another, to hold yourself back from one another when you're tempted to just break loose and fly off at the handle with one another. 
in any situation. That's what it means. It means you just back away under any difficulty and say, hey, whatever it is you're doing or saying or whatever's going on, the Lord has a reason, the Lord has a purpose, and I, I just need to bear with this in a godly way and be a good Christian witness in this deal. That's what it means. And then look next, verse 13, he goes a step further. And forgiving each other. Not easy, but necessary. Those two traits, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, are two great and necessary characteristics for any healthy church that demonstrates healthiness year after year and decade after decade as we go through life together as a church family, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Essential. It says next, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Anybody got some complaints about others here today? Who is our example? Well, look next. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That just stops you right in your tracks. Or it should. Jesus is the greatest model of forgiveness in history. And he has forgiven us totally and completely with no strings attached. His forgiveness has nothing to do with whether we deserved it or not. And it's 100% genuine, and it's freely given. So when we are dealing with somebody who is rubbing us the wrong way or whatever the issue is, remember how Jesus is dealing with us and what we're doing right now. Don't forget it. So, Paul is calling us to put on all of these qualities with our new selves. And if you study Jesus in his word, you will see that he demonstrates every one of them as an example for us. Now next we, we, we move to what really ties all this together. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> Beyond all these, meaning everything he just listed, Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. What a great phrase, huh? Supernatural love, which the Bible says God pours into the hearts of believers and which Paul is calling us here to put on, is, the MacArthur again study Bible notes, the adhesive of the church. It's love that ties it all together. You will never experience compassion for people unless you love them. Not truly, not genuinely. You will never experience kindness towards other people unless you love them. The same goes for experiencing true humility and meekness towards people. For sure, you will never ever be willing to be long-suffering and patient and forgive others without love. 
It really comes down to that one arching, overarching reality, doesn't it? Love. Paul says, look at the end of Romans 13.10 with me. What does he say right there at the end? Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. All the do's and don'ts can be fulfilled if you truly enact one thing, love. Go through the Ten Commandments in your mind. Attach love, and you'll see. Without love, all that list can wind up being is just a whole lot of legalistic moral attitudes. That's all it is. Sadly, some professing Christians live that way because of poor teaching and their own responsibility. But let me give you an example like humility. Have you ever heard of a humble brag? That false, self-generated humility? Some folks fall for that. Others don't. If you're a little sharper knife in the drawer, you don't. But if humility is not generated by genuine love, then it's not genuine humility. And love, don't forget, is a fruit of the what? The Spirit. So if you're trying to generate all these things Paul has listed for us on your own, I'm here to tell you right now, it ain't never going to work. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. And love is the thing that ties it all together. Now next we're going to look at the, the priorities of the new man. Stacy's special music didn't go on as long, so I got more time. And there's three big ones here in verses 15 to 17. Number one, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Number two, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Number three, let the name of Christ be the issue in everything you do. Very, very practical. So let's look at the first one. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Again, MacArthur says in study notes, let the peace of Christ be the umpire. What does he mean by that? Well, you got a problem? You got a decision that you need to make? Let the peace of Christ make that decision for you. Now, very quickly, because I want to make sure you get this, there's two aspects to the peace of Christ. First, the Greek word means an agreement, a pact, a treaty. Now, the Hebrew concept of means an attitude of peace, rest, or security. But both of those things exist together in our understanding of what it means, that phrase, the peace of Christ. When you came to Christ, you made an agreement. Matter of fact, you know what you did? You signed a truce. You were at war with him. In your natural condition, you hated him. But in his own blood on the cross, Jesus wrote a treaty, a covenant, a bond, and an agreement with all believers. And he said, in effect, from now on, all who believe are at peace with me. Peace with the God-man. Christ Jesus. What a truce. What an agreement. What a pact. 
Now, that aspect of the peace of Christ is not talking about an inner attitude. This is, this is a sinner who was at war with God, making peace with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we're talking about. War's over. But then there's a second aspect. The peace that is that inner rest. That inner calm. You only know it if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If I'm going to make a decision, the umpire is going to say, will it give peace to my soul? That's how you think about it. Will it give me a confident security that God is in this deal? So it's peace with Christ and the peace of Christ. Both a state and an experience. Both a fact and a feeling. And you get in a situation and you ask yourself, one, is it consistent with me and Jesus being on the same side? That's the first question I need to figure out. And then two, will it leave me with peace and rest in my heart? And then you make the call. Whatever situation is. So verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. There's the calling again. Into one body of Christ. And then he ends the verse with and be thankful. You want to stay peaceful? Just keep thanking God for everything. The last few years By the sovereign grace of God alone, I have cultivated thanksgiving in my prayer time to the number one slot. It takes up the most minutes of my morning prayer is thanksgiving. Try it. Try it. I promise you won't be sorry. All of these are sermon series in themselves, but y'all got to start listening fast because we got to move on. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Another sermon series in itself, by the way. Know what the word dwell means there? It means to be at home. Let the word of Christ be at home in you. Home is comfortable, right? I don't know about you, but besides here at church, I can promise you there is nowhere else on planet Earth that I would rather be on than on Cary Road with that woman right there. Nowhere else. Not no hotels. My kids say, we are boring. We are routine. We don't ever go anywhere. We don't never do nothing. I mean, that's the way we like it. We like being at home, Jack. So the word, be at home, let the word of Christ Be at home in your system. Be comfortable there. And notice it says richly dwell. That's better translated abundantly. It means it it, it should permeate your life. The word of Christ. And snacks shouldn't make you content. Full course prime rib 
Dinners is the kind of diet that this verse is talking about from the Word of God. Okay? And there's only one way you get that on the menu. You got to read it. You got to study it. And then you got to live it. Sitting under the preaching of the Word of God is important, but it comes behind those three. Read it. Study it. Live it. There's lots more to say. We got to move on. Because Paul, it blame him. I mean, he just keeps throwing more in here. If you let the peace of Christ rule and the word of Christ richly dwell, what will two big time results be? We'll look next in verse 16. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. You're going to go out with divine wisdom. Teaching, that's the positive, and admonishing, that's the negative. Positive is saying, do this, do this, do this. Admonishing is saying, don't do this and don't do that. From the Word of God. Folks, that's for the edification of the church. When you admonish Christians, you are warning them, hey, if you continue in that behavior, God is going to chasten you. He'll bring some hard things into your life to get you back in line. We need both the negative and the positive as we are learning and and growing and striving to, to live our lives to the glory of God. Now, it just doesn't stop there. We, we, we don't need just information. There's also emotion that Paul attaches here. All of a sudden... You wind right up in the next verse 16. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Look next. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know this. Sunday morning worship is not a musical performance. It's all of us singing to God with thankfulness in our hearts. Even when a few of us do that is a special in a little group like we did a few weeks ago. That's us doing that. Please give me some reasons why Christians should not be the happiest people on earth. I'll wait. Give me one. Can't do it. Real quick, a psalm is referring to the Old Testament Psalter, book of Psalms. We read one every week and then we sing the one we read every week. He did it today. Hymns are basically categorized as expressions of praise to God. We sing plenty of those out of the hymn book, right? Spiritual songs are technically categorized as personal testimony songs. I'm going to give you one right out of the Bible, right out of uh, Revelation 5. And they sang a new song. Thou art worthy to take the scroll and open its seal, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and made us unto our God a kingdom of priests and we shall reign on the earth. That's a testimony. That's a song. Look what you've done for us. We have those kind of songs in our hymn book too. Notice lastly, verse 16. 
singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, that's self-explanatory. I mean, we talked about it earlier, right? That's taking the thankfulness that is in your heart for who God is and what he has done and putting it into expression in your singing. God wants to hear that from you. God has heard that from you today in your singing. As Christians, not only should we be the happiest people on earth, we should always be the most thankful people on earth. And that should just burst out of us as we're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, especially on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day. Now, one last thing. He'd been giving us some basic things that that should be a part of the life of the new man. And then there were those big priority things like the peace of Christ and the word of Christ. But then we come lastly to verse 17. Just love how Paul sets things up. And then he just, like with a Louisville slugger, he just, pow! Here comes one. Home run. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Really, to sum it up, Paul is saying, if you want me to say uh, everything that I've been saying in just one sentence, just do whatever you do in word or deed. Do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Pow. That's the overall capstone statement. Do that and you'll have it. All in the name of the Lord Jesus means consistent with who he is, consistent with what he wants. That's simple. And he can't help himself but add at the end, look at it, giving thanks through him, that's Christ, to God the Father. Because God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, today for your word. Powerful verses from your word that teaches us your desire for the new man that by sovereign grace you pulled as embers from the fire, plucked us as brands from the fire. Lord, we didn't deserve it, but for your reasons, according to the good pleasure of your will, the Bible says, you've done it and you've made us into new creatures. And now you expect us to act like it. And so, Lord, I'm praying for every one of us that the word of God today preached from these verses would penetrate deeply into every believer. Help us, Lord, to up our game as we struggle with our flesh to live out these traits of the Christian life. And again, if there are any here who do not know you savingly, I pray for you to draw them and bring them to saving faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you today for your day. Thank you for this beautiful building we should never take for granted. And I thank you so much for these wonderful Christian people who do not want a diet of milk. They want to hear your word proclaimed. I pray, Father, they've heard it today and that you have received glory from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.